0: Good morning, morning. and happy 4th of July weekend, yes, where we we celebrate one of God's most precious gifts, fireworks, (laughs) amen, At, at least if you're not a dog, right? Our poor dog, well, in addition to fireworks, we of course celebrate God's amazing grace, seen even in his precious gift of America or more personally, perhaps, the freedom that comes from being an American. Last week, we began a series on God in the movies where we're taking a look at some popular movies and seeing if we can find God in there somewhere. Movies are a powerful tool to illustrate truth, to illustrate God, either directly or by way of contrast when they get it wrong. So movies can help us better understand truth by by way of telling a compelling story on a screen. But more than merely illustrating truth, movies can be a source of God's truth, it seems to me, since all truth, wherever it's found, is God's truth. And as sources of truth, movies can be, in my opinion, should be used as a powerful tool to witness truth to people. Almost everyone loves movies and loves to talk about them. And so, my hope, my goal in using movies in this series is. To get us thinking about how we can use something people are already interested in, movies, to proclaim God. When we go to the movies, when you go to the movies, I hope to encourage you, even as you're being entertained by them, to see them as well through the lens of biblical truth. What's in that movie that speaks truth? What's in there that does not? And then when you talk to others about the movie you've seen, you can bring those things out in the discussion and with God's help, become a powerful witness of who He is or isn't. People may well hear us when using movies to talk about truth, even if those very same people might turn off to the same discussion based on a biblical text, for example, that they may not be interested in discussing as much as they'd be interested in discussing a movie. So that's the deeper purpose behind this series on popular movies, to further equip us, give us yet another tool in our toolbox of reaching and loving people for God, in addition to perhaps deepening or affirming or even adding to our own understanding of God. Now, this is easier to do with some movies than others, obviously. And the movies we've picked for this series are rather obvious examples where God in His truth is clearly seen or at least clearly implicated. Last week's movie, The Adjustment Bureau, It just shouts about God's sovereignty and human free will, for example. And whether or not we completely agree with that movie's final take on the subject, it certainly opens the door to wrestle with it and to discuss it, as many of you have told me this past week. And so, too, with the movie this morning, Amazing Grace, although I suspect this movie finds much wider appeal to Christians of every theological bent or belief. Its message is so fundamentally, clearly Christian. But even though clear, it contains plenty to wrestle over. And much of the wrestling it demands lies deep within each and every one of us, especially, it seems to me, on a weekend we celebrate our freedom. If you haven't seen this movie, see it. I rarely tell people they need to see a particular movie, but I come very close with Amazing Grace. Everyone should see it and wrestle with whatever God puts on your heart as you experience this remarkable story and its many messages. I was tempted to do the entire movie series this summer on this movie alone, it's that deep. But John Burns wouldn't let me. He wants a different movie every week, and I think that's best too. But, but see Amazing Grace sometime if you can. It works for the whole family, although there are PG-13 moments parents, so use your discretion. And some teens and adults might find this movie less exciting or slower than their favorites. It's got that British thing going with it. But its message... It's worth your time and attention and wrestle. Whether you've seen it or not, here again is a summary of this movie from our very own Burns and Cook. Let's watch.
1: Here's everything you need to know about Amazing Grace in 5 minutes, 30 seconds. It's the late 18th century. British colonialism has flourished for decades in the West Indies and the Americas. But Great Britain's empire has not come cheaply. It has been built on the backs of 11 million African slaves. Few oppose the slavery. Even fewer are willing to speak out against it. Weakened by illness, a man tortured by his own pursuit of justice makes his way to the British countryside for some much-needed rest. But rest does not come easily.
2: Did you sleep? Sleep is more exhausting than being awake. It replays my life to mock me and shows me things I should have done but didn't.
1: The man is William Wilberforce, a politician in the House of Commons who has fought for 15 years to abolish the British slave trade. And now he is tired and he is sick, and he has given up. But William's cousin has the solution to William's woes. It is almost a scientific fact,
2: marriage and health
1: are twins, inseparable. He tries to match William with a stunning redhead, Barbara Spooner. The match is unsuccessful at first but subsequent meetings produce a different outcome. One long night, William recounts for Barbara the past 15 years of his tenure at Parliament. Arguing for an end to the British-American War, William brought much attention to himself early in his career. There
2: is no question that our military force is far superior to that of the Americans. But we must distinguish between force and justice. does this little-blooded terrier spring from? I believe he's a Yorkshire Terrier, my lord.
1: But William suddenly finds his passions shifting.
2: I've been even more strange than usual lately, haven't I? It's God. You found God, sir? I think he found me. If you have any idea how inconvenient that is.
1: His newfound faith seems at odds with his political career, and his friend introduces him to an unlikely group of people ...who confront him with the atrocities of slavery.
2: When the slaves leave port in Africa, they're locked into a space four foot by 18 inches. They have no sanitation, very little food, stagnant water. Their waste and blood fills the holds within three days.
1: And unite William's faith with his position in Parliament.
2: Mr. Wilberforce, we understand you're having problems choosing whether to do the work of God or the work of a political activist. We humbly suggest that you can do both.
1: The abolition of slavery becomes William's focus. William visits his mentor, a slave ship captain turned pastor turned songwriter. William is tasked by his mentor to take on the slave trade and warned of the personal toll it will take on him.
2: You won't come away from those streets clean, Wilbur. You'll get filthy with it, you'll dream it, see it in broad daylight, but do it, for God's sake.
1: Time and again, William's efforts before Parliament fail. And although William has collected over 390,000 British signatures calling for the abolition of the slave trade, his bill is again defeated. Exhausted, William falls ill. Now William has finished recounting his efforts to Barbara. As it turns out, Barbara was exactly what William needed after all. Is that the end of your story? You think not? No. Why not? Because after night comes day. William takes up the cause of slavery's abolition once again. But first, he marries Barbara. At the wedding, they sing the song written by his mentor. assembles his team they have discovered a legal loophole that could shut down the slave trade completely it's all very technical and sneaky and a little bit boring but that is precisely the point few show up at Parliament to hear the bill proposed and although those who oppose the abolition of the slave trade catch wind of the abolitionists plan it is too late the boring bill is passed it effectively ends the profitability of the slave trade two years pass a bill officially abolishing slavery is proposed one last time.
2: The unamended bill calling for the abolition of the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire. Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283.
1: And 17 years after he began... William has finally accomplished God's work.
0: There are many threads we could tug at in this remarkable story. Certainly the thread of slavery or human trafficking and more general in the utter wrongness of it A sermon on the book of Philemon would be appropriate here. That book of the Bible that outlines a response to slavery, that is, make people part of your family, not slaves to it, as Paul passionately urges his friend Philemon to do with Onesimus, Philemon's former slave, who Paul introduces As Paul's own son to help make the point. Or the threat of encouraging a believer's faithful perseverance against all odds is certainly highlighted in this movie. And even the amazing grace of a good husband, or in the case of this movie, a good wife and good friends toward that end of encouragement and perseverance. The importance of Christian community and Christian marriage is a topic we could chase in amazing grace. We could also talk about the proper role of politics or government in helping to realize the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is at hand. I don't think it's possible to watch the political battle over slavery in this movie and not think about today's political battle over abortion. where regardless of where you stand on the issue, the life of the unborn is pitted against a person's freedom to choose. Or we could talk about what scholars call liberation theology and its place, at least, in the body of Christ, should we not only save people's souls at all costs, but also save them from oppressive governments or circumstances no matter the means necessary. And while those and, and many other worthy topics are ripe for, the, ripe for the picking in this story, this morning in the time we have on this Independence Day weekend, I want to share a bit with you some thoughts about Freedom even as we're celebrating America and the freedom she gives and protects, we face a huge temptation when it comes to our freedom. And it's a temptation that perhaps peaks when we celebrate our freedom. I feel this temptation every 4th of July well up in and around me. Maybe you do too. And that temptation is to make our freedom ours. To make our freedom all about us, or individually all about me. Because you see, it's not. God's precious, amazing gift of freedom is not all about me, or all about us. That's not its purpose. Rather, our freedom is first and foremost about others at least it should be, it must be. The Bible talks a lot about freedom, particularly the Apostle Paul, who, like us, is speaking to a Western audience, one accustomed to freedom and standing on rights. After listing several of his own rights that Paul gives up for the sake of others, Paul has this to say in 1 Corinthians, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul's focus on his freedom for the good and service of others is so clear. He continues in the next chapter I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. In Galatians, Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself I said what the purpose of our freedom of my freedom is so we can better love others as ourselves radical stuff paul In Romans, Paul writes, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. The apostle Peter is every bit as adamant. Live as free people, Peter says, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Slaves to righteousness, slaves of God. In other words, we have a duty. There's a work to be done to obey God, and Jesus summarizes our obedience with one word, love. Love God and love others. In fact, it's stronger in context. Love God first and foremost by loving others. And I could go on and on in the text. The Bible talks a lot about freedom and, in every instance, insists, urges, pleads unequivocally that we use our freedom not for ourselves, but to obey and to love God and to love others. Our freedom is not about us, our freedom is about others. And, like the rich and powerful in the movie Amazing Grace, we can so easily be tempted whether as a country or as individuals, to use our freedom for our own benefit. And we end up blinded with our eyes so full of stuff, so full of ourselves, so full of ourselves, we can't even see anyone else. In the film, the rich and the greatest, if not the only, the rich are the greatest if not the only obstacle that Wilberforce faces in abolishing slavery. It's because those who are not struggling tend to be blind from seeing or caring, let alone doing anything about those who are struggling. I wonder if we err there as well. Allow things like our own comfort and our own stuff to get in the way of serving others, of loving others as ourselves. What we may need most desperately as the people of God is a cause other than ourselves, a cause that serves others and not self, because the purpose of our freedom in Christ and our freedom as Americans, of any freedom that God graciously gives us, the purpose of our freedom is ultimately others. Probably my favorite scene in Amazing Grace is when Wilberforce goes a second time to visit his mentor and pastor, John Newton, that author of the hymn Amazing Grace. The first time Wilberforce visits Newton, Newton is unwilling to even talk about what happened on his slave boat while he was captain. Newton's repented, he's saved, and that's enough for him. His personal salvation's secure. He was blind, and now he can see. And so Wilberforce leaves that first meeting a bit disappointed because Newton's testimony, his help, would have been a huge help in abolishing slavery. But after some time passes, when Wilberforce visits Newton again, He finds Newton, at long last, giving his confession, writing his testimony down on paper, and insisting that Wilberforce use it to help others. And what Newton tells Wilberforce near the end of this scene is the highlight of the movie for me and may well be the movie's thesis, the main point it tries to drive home. I have that scene to share with you, let's watch.
2: When the slaves are flogged on the wharf, their arms are tied to a hook on a crane and weights of 56 pounds applied to their feet. The crane is raised so that their feet barely touch the ground. The slaves are then whipped with ebony bushes, comma, to let out the congealing blood. I don't hear the nib scratching the page. We have company, sir. John. It's me, Wilbur. Liebe. They only told me your sight was fading. Well, now it's faded altogether. I never did things by halves. God decided I'd seen enough. So it's true. What's true? Writing your account. Uh I wish I could see your face. How are you looking? Same. Still too thin? A little fatter lately. Oh, she feeds you well then, this wife of yours? She's given me an appetite. Uh, An appetite to change things. This is my confession. You must use it. Names, ships' records, ports, people. Everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. You must publish it. Blow a hole in their boat with it. Damn them with it. I wish I could remember all their names. My 20,000 ghosts, they all have names. Beautiful African names. We call them with just grunts, noises. We were apes. They were humans. <laughs> weeping. I couldn't weep till I wrote this. <sighs> I once was blind. But now I see. Didn't I write that too? Yes, you did. Well, now at last it's true. Now go, we'll go. We've lots of work to do, you and I.
0: John Newton, former slave boat captain, repents and becomes a Christian and joins the church. He writes one of the greatest and most loved hymns of the Christian faith, a hymn that celebrates the grace and forgiveness people receive from God, a hymn that praises God for the gift of salvation, a hymn that includes the line, I was blind, but now I see. But isn't it fascinating and telling, that it isn't until Newton does something for others with his newfound freedom and salvation, it isn't until Newton decides to give Wilberforce his written account to join in the fight for use against slavery that Newton can truly see, though he is already saved. And the irony is so powerful because the man who wrote, I was blind but now I see, doesn't truly see until he is blind. And what does this blind man now see? He sees that he has work to do with his freedom in Christ for others. Do we truly see? or are we still blind whether it's our freedom in Christ or freedom as Americans do we truly see that there is work to do for others do we share do we share that desperate consuming passion of william wilberforce for others who struggle Do we share God's desperation for the lost and for those who struggle? What won't we give of ourselves or what is ours in love of others? What won't we give? The movie takes a bit of creative license with history, especially at the end. It's interesting, in fact, to note that John Newton died nine months before Britain passed the Slave Trade Act of 1807, which abolished trading slaves, but not yet slavery itself. And while Wilberforce was there for that law passing in 1807, you saw that scene. Wilberforce died in 1833 Only three days after he was assured, the Slavery Abolition Act would pass a few weeks later, and it did. Two men willing to give their all for others and each of their deaths surrounding such incredibly important legislation, a picture, at least, of God taking them home now that their work was finished. I, I imagine the sheer beauty of that moment when Jesus said to each man, well done, good and faithful servant. So as we enjoy fireworks, and as we sing God Bless America, and that curiously long list of patriotic country western songs, And even as we sing Amazing Grace, I'll go ahead and sing them out loud with all your heart in celebration of God's gracious gift of freedom. It is an incredible gift. But as we sing, please, don't forget, our passion behind our love of freedom cannot be love of self. And what we get to do for ourselves with it, it has to be love of others if it's Christ's love. Love your freedom, but not because what you can do, what you want to do. Love freedom because it frees you to love others so that the world may know there is a God and know the love of God in Christ through you because our freedom isn't about us. It's about them. What will you do with your freedom? Love, obey, serve? Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is demanded, and we have been given so much, my fellow Americans, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who's been given more ever than us? So what will we do with our freedom? Love? Obey? serve? If so, then we too will truly see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you were worried in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that when your children went into the promised land and received it all that they would forget you and forget the witness of your love to the world you intended them to be. And here we are again, Father, your people who you have given so much. Help us, help us to remember what you have done for us and help us to remember your heart's cry for the lost and the poor and the unfairly treated and those who struggle and can't help themselves. Don't let us forget, help us to truly see the full measure of our freedom, our freedom in Christ, and our freedom as citizens of this amazing country that you've graciously given us to live in. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name, the one who gave to others most of all, and that's why. We pray in the power of His name and all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? I thought, um, I thought we'd sing John Newton's Amazing Grace together for our benediction this morning, keeping in mind the freedom we now have in Christ, not only for our own salvation, but now especially to serve others. I chose the oldest version of the hymn that uh, we have recorded. It's most likely Newton's original lyrics. Many verses have been added or taken away over the years. I was surprised to learn that that very famous last verse, we've been there 10,000 years, was added later, anonymously, as I understand it. Here, as best we know, is the song that Newton actually wrote. We'll sing all 27
2: verses.
0: (laughs) No, but there are six. And I just couldn't cut even one. So if you would, please, uh, let's sing together and hear God's words even through this remarkable man and this remarkable hymn. Let's close this morning with amazing grace. Thank you. God grant you the peace that passes understanding as you go and you live free, free to love and free to serve in his name. All God's people said, amen. We'll see you next week. Have a great holiday, West Bowl.